Hi, this is a quick heads up that this podcast will contain a variety of spoilers for a variety of seasons of Survivor. This episode in particular contains discussion about players, placements, and winners for multiple seasons from season one through to season 33. Everybody, 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 drop your Welcome to Drop Your Buffs, a brand new podcast about Survivor. I'm Sean Ross. And I'm Evan Ross Katz. We are two friends who have never met IRL, but who talk pretty much every single day. I feel like I talk to you, Sean, more than I talk to my family. Our friendship began with our shared love of The View. I discovered this podcast that I love and adore called Deja The View. You do the social media for Deja The View and have appeared on it frequently. That's right. Yeah. And then early in quarantine, our topics of our voice memos shifted and uh, became about Survivor, um, which is a show that you've watched from the very beginning, from 2000 to 2021, where we are today. And I watched the first two seasons when they first aired. And then now, thanks to you, you've kind of been my ambassador of the show. I am currently on season 33. So I think one of the cool things about this podcast is you really are like the historian and I really am the new girl in town. Yeah, I guess so. I feel like historian is a big moniker to take on. (laughs) It's a lot of pressure uh, because there's so much to know. I mean, there's 40 seasons, hundreds of cast members hundreds of hours it's a lot to keep on top of and you know my journey with survivor has also ebbed and flowed a little bit you lose interest at times then you come back in uh, and that's certainly been my experience so my expertise is spotty in places but yes i will accept the title of historian in this case but we thought because you have been watching this sequentially for the Mm -hmm. past year that we would take our hours and hours of voice memos that we've been sending back and forth about Survivor as I sort of live vicariously through your uh, watching for the first time uh, and turn that into a podcast about this show that we both love. I hope you're still loving it. Oh yeah, totally. But I think one thing that you you and I have kind of conversed about through and through is sort of like there's the canonically loved seasons and then there's sort of the unloved seasons and then the forgotten seasons and I think a lot of my great interest in the show is sort of how often my feelings about a particular season or a particular character are not in line with the general consensus among the fandom. You and I tend to align more often than not, but I think that's one of the really fun things I found about the show is like, there's how I feel about it, and then there's like learning about, because this is a pretty vocal fandom, Mm -hmm. and you'll learn that like, not you, Sean, you the listener, if you don't already know, the fandom tends to, tends to, I say, you know, not to, to say it's completely this way, but tends to love a character or hate a character. For instance, when you say the name Parvati, in the Survivor, you know, canon, you're gonna more often than not find people that love Parvati. And when you mention someone like a Russell, it's more often than not going to be a, a dislike. And I think, and I will say 
for them, I'm aligned. But I think it's really <laughs> fun to sort of uh, explore one's own feelings about the show and then sort of look up how they uh, compare and contrast to the fan consensus. Yeah, and the really fun thing about sticking with it for years and years has been watching the reassessment of certain characters or seasons over the years, revisiting things in retrospect uh, and looking at them with 2020 vision or 2021 vision and seeing, you know, maybe a season wasn't received so well when it aired, but in retrospect, it's actually pretty great. And maybe that retrospect is vis-a-vis the seasons that are airing now, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's uh, that we're coming from it from a different cultural lens. This makes me think about in Survivor Worlds Apart, misogyny started to become a topic that was brought up, you know, within the show. It was a big theme within the reunion was talking about the way the men on the show, not just Dan, several of the men, but particularly Dan, uh, spoke to and about the women. And to your point of what you just said, that misogyny is present from season one, but Mm. it took them about 30 seasons to have the conversation about it. So yes, I think there are many ways in which the show, and we'll be exploring this in depth, I'm quite sure, is quite, I don't want to use the word woke, um, but there's many ways in which the show is quite perceptive to speaking about the social experiment that that the game is and sort of like what comes out of that and, and, and the machinations of that. And then there are other times that the show takes a long time to be able to talk about some of the, the dynamics that have been present through and through, mainly when I say that I'm speaking about the misogyny. Yeah, and I mean, you can also apply this to sort of the most recent newsworthy thing to happen on Survivor was in season 39. I know you're not there yet, uh, but the sexual harassment, sexual assault, which uh, has been an issue on Survivor since at least season five with Gondia. And the way that the show talked about it in season 39 was as if this was a new issue for the show. So I think it goes both ways. But being a reality show where, although it's heavily edited, more or less we're seeing everything, warts and all, uh, presented more or less objectively, uh, we do get to look back and see how things were perceived 15 years ago, 16 years ago, 20 years ago. And it's interesting what you said about Gandia because, like, as you mentioned, I have not seen season 39 yet, but I'm very aware of what happens in season 39. And watching season five, which is, I would say, the first really forgotten season um, of Survivor. If you talk to your casual Survivor viewer, they more than likely will not mention season five. The winner has more or less been scrubbed um, from existence. We'll get into that later. But... One of the interesting things about watching that sexual assault storyline play out was how much you had this woman expressing something that she had experienced uh, vis-a-vis another contestant on the show and how much the other contestants just were unwilling to even consider the truth of her statement, uh, the truth of her experience. And it's really hard to watch when this person goes through something and not a single other person out there is willing to one, believe them, but also just stand with them and, you know, like be a good human being and be there for her. That was one of the first moments I remember watching and being like, this would not pass in 2021, not Mm -hmm. just from the audience, but also I just think the players themselves would react differently. And I also think it's one of those prime examples of how different reality television was before 
social media, but particularly Twitter, because you were not able to see people's real-time reactions. And so I think the shows themselves had to grapple less with moral ambiguity because they didn't have people on Twitter uh, holding them them accountable the way that they do now. Yeah. So we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. I want to back up, Evan. I want to sort of like context set here. So you mentioned that you had watched the first two seasons when they originally aired and then uh, started to pick the show back up again in 2020 with lockdown and quarantine. Can you tell me about that decision? How did you come to Survivor and how did you come to the order in which you were going to watch it? And what has that experience been like for you? And that's a good question because so often I feel like people have their sort of starter seasons that they give you, which was given to me. And I feel like I made the mistake of listening. So for me, it began when my partner, Billy, read about the existence of an all winner season of the show. And and Billy is a huge Big Brother fan. And Big Brother has not yet had an all winner season. And as just someone who's like really interested in strategy, gameplay, you know, Big Brother type shows, I think he was really interested in the idea of an all winner season. And so he was like, you know what, we should try watching the show because we want to have the reward of eventually watching an all winner season. So I posted on Twitter asking, hey, I'm going to begin my survivor journey what are the seasons that I should start with? And one thing, and you know this well, Sean, is that this community feels strongly about what a Survivor viewer should and shouldn't watch, how they should feel. And there's a lot of ubiquity within the responses. So pretty much, I would say on the whole, it was season seven, Pearl Islands, season 16, Micronesia, and season 20, Heroes vs. Villains. All of which I would argue are horrible starter seasons, horrible (laughs) starter seasons, particularly 16 and 20, because Mm -hmm. basically you're putting people, you're dropping them in the middle of the ocean and giving them no guidance towards where there is land. And so although I did start with season seven and did quite enjoy it. I'm very glad that I then went back to season one and since then have watched the the show sequentially because there's just the way the show itself has grown both consciously and subconsciously. I think the most obvious way is like the literal look of the show if you Mm -hmm. go back and just look at season one it looks like it was filmed in you know medieval times and then you go to (laughs) i believe hd started in season 17 am i correct that's right yeah yeah so that alone it's just really interesting to watch that form and then also to watch the archetypes of survivor being formed to watch how the game sort of reacts to itself there are certain twists and turns that are introduced in certain seasons that you can tell don't work and that never appear again so definitely sequential and as i mentioned i'm currently midway through 33 we pretty much mainline the show, so I feel like we'll be finished, I don't know, in the next couple of months. Um, but that's my journey. But you, as we mentioned up top, I mean, you were there from the beginning, beginning? Yeah, I mean, I was not there episode one, but it was probably episode three or four because it was a, a very exponential growth for this show when it was on. It began airing in 2000 with Survivor Borneo as a summer season of television you know it's easy to forget what pop culture was like 
back then, a summer season of television was unique because nothing else was on TV. Uh, everything else was in reruns. And so to have something that was not just watchable, but actually great was rare to have. And so this show coming out in the summer of 2000 really became like a pop cultural moment. I cannot understate the impact that this show had. And, and anybody who was around at the time, whether you watched it or not, probably remembers this. All of that to say, I jumped in around episode three or four, probably. I don't remember my first time watching. Uh, what they did do, at least uh, in Canada, where I am, is that they started running reruns of the first few episodes that you missed. And I think they did that quite regularly so that people could catch up because, of course, these things weren't streamable. So I did watch the past episodes, caught up, and it was just such a moment and... I was so fully invested in this show, and not just because I was caught up in the pop cultural hoopla of it all, but also because I loved the premise and I loved the characters. I was so drawn in, particularly as a kid, by Greg and Colleen and Jenna in season one. I loved that someone had my name with my spelling, uh, Dr. Sean. I loved Sue Hawk. I loved Kelly Wigglesworth. Uh, you know, Rudy was funny. I was, I think, fascinated by watching Richard Hatch as a gay man when I was a closeted gay teen. You know, this is one of the first real gay people I'm seeing in the world or on television. And so, you know, I'm at once like fascinated and horrified <laughs> watching him totally and and like sort of figuring out okay is, th is this what i am yeah. uh, so i'm also having that how do i not struggle <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, so anyways, all that to say, I continued watching. Uh, I never really fell off except for when I went to university around Guatemala, Palau. Uh, and then I did catch up on those once I figured out a, a routine for my life. And, and I watched everything and it's been rewarding and also challenging to watch sometimes, you know, when we hit uh, the Russell Hance and post-Russell Hance era. That was a very trying time as a right. fan. And then also, you know, I've struggled through the 20s and then I struggled through the 30s. What happened to me is that when I watched season 34, Game Changers, I finally decided to bow out from the show. Uh, there is a particular moment in Game Changers, which I will not mention because Evan hasn't seen it yet, but I'm sure that many people listening who have watched it know what it is. And that was my breaking point and I stopped watching until Winners at War came up and I thought, okay, well, I have to watch an all-winner season. And so I did, and it was okay. And I went back and watched all the seasons I missed because I just, it sucked me back in. So it tends to have that effect, I feel. Yeah, it's fun and rewarding to stay with a show for 40 seasons, 20 years, and stick with it through thick and thin and see where it goes. You know, I'm a stubborn television watcher. I'm a completist. It always bothered me when I missed a season and that's why I would go back and, and catch up. So I do want to go back to what you were saying about season one and, and the cultural phenomenon that it was because I think it's worth noting this is the year 2000, so we're eight years into the real world. So it's not as though we didn't have reality television at all, but 
We didn't have reality competition at that time, which I think is significant. But more than that, even, I think that the thing with the real world was they always tried to portray it as like, here are seven strangers picked to live in a house. But ultimately, though they came from different backgrounds, they were all the same age, and they all wanted the attention of being on camera in some way. And with Survivor, and one thing I think distinguishes it from so many other shows, is there are real reasons why people go on Survivor. One, the adventure of a lifetime, and two, the money. And a million dollars today is a lot of money. A million dollars in 2000 was a lot of money. And so I think what's particularly interesting was though we'd had with the real world, as I mentioned, this sort of people coming from different walks of life, this really brought people together from all different places, all different age groups, religions, backgrounds, skin color, you name it, all together on this island. And then on top of that, they had no idea what was going to happen. Both them, the contestants, and in many ways, the producers. I mean, they knew to an extent, but things happened, right? In Borneo in particular, mm -hmm. that were not predictable. So I think what's particularly fascinating about that early season, or the, even the early seasons in general, and even that I think still to this day makes it so different is you don't have, I mean, sure, you get actors on the show, you get people that like want the 15 minutes of fame, but I think this show possesses, and this even separates it from Big Brother, I feel, in that you get people out there that are not interested in fame and are not interested in the camera, are genuinely just interested in this bizarre opportunity that the show presents and the ability to go to these places that they would never go. You have you know, times on the show where you have 70-somethings befriending 20-somethings, and it's just relationships like that, that even in today's landscape when reality television has become so ubiquitous, you still don't get a lot of the bizarre friendships that form on a game like Survivor. Yeah, and to your point about the million dollars, that is, I think, a really significant factor in not only Survivor's uh, popularity at the time, but also in what makes it a great reality show, because this is coming just off the heels of the premiere of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in 2000. Uh, which was, I think, the first game show where you could win a million dollars. And that captured people's imagination in a big way. And seeing how difficult it was for somebody to win a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, all of a sudden the show pops up where they say, the winner is guaranteed a million dollars. Somebody in these 16 people will win a million dollars if you stick with this show and see it through to the end. And that was a big draw for people because like you say, that is a life-changing amount of money. And also, and I feel like I'm gonna be doing a lot of contrasting to RuPaul's Drag Race just because that's a reality show that I've also watched from the beginning and one that I have strong ties to. I think another big difference, the prize for RuPaul's Drag Race is 100,000 a tenth of the Survivor um, check, if you're you know, not as good as math as I am. Um, no, okay, I'm terrible at it. But um, I think that's interesting to note, not only because it's one tenth, but also if you think about the fact that the girls on RuPaul's Drag Race are pouring thousands and thousands of dollars into their preparation for the show. So not only is the prize money so, so much less on so many other shows, but Survivor, as you mentioned, it's 39 days, but it costs nothing to go on the show. And 39 days, I mean, I feel, I don't know about you, but I feel like with the job I have, I could tell them, hey, I need five weeks off to go film this show and then come back. With Big Brother, for instance, where it's you know half the prize money, it's a whole summer. They're in that house for fucking forever. And so I feel like with Survivor, it's like, 
not a, I mean, it's a big commitment, don't get me wrong, but it's 39 days, you know, 39 days to earn a million dollars in 39 days. And mind you also, for people that don't know, there's an, uh, a sliding scale that any contestant that appears on the show earns some sort of paycheck. I just feel like it's, it's a tremendous opportunity even to come in 16th place, later 18th, later 20th place. You're, you're making money from doing the show and there are opportunities that come your way in the possibility of returning to the show or less so in the survivor verse than drag race, but in parlaying the fame or air quotes fame um, that comes with the show and sort of using that as a springboard. I know we've had, you know, Colleen Haskell from season one famously sort of parlayed her, her, and you know, she had some legit fame, but parlayed that mm-hmm. fame into an acting career um, before she pulled a, you'll never see me again. Yeah. And not to mention Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who heard of her really, really turned it into something. Yeah. For people that don't remember, and I know we'll get into this later, but like Rosie O'Donnell was a huge fan of Survivor. And so I think that what gets lost in the Rosie v. Elizabeth of it all is the fact that Rosie was not only familiar with Elizabeth Filarski, but was a huge, I don't know if she was a fan specifically of Elizabeth, maybe you do, but I just, I know she was Mm -hmm. such a big fan of the show. She even hosted the reunion in season four. But so that's some context I did not have. I always just thought, you know, they they were co-workers on The View, but actually, funny enough, it's like Rosie began as a fan of Elizabeth. I don't know if Elizabeth was a fan of Rosie's. I don't know that she was a fan of Rosie, but she certainly liked Rosie enough because when Rosie had the cast of season two on her show, she gifted Elizabeth a trip to Paris for Elizabeth and her husband's honeymoon to go see Fashion Week in Paris because Elizabeth was a sneaker designer for mm. Puma, I believe, at the time. So uh, yeah, it's it's like a fascinating origin story for that feud. Totally. So, you know, outside of the prize money, potential fame and fortune, particularly for those uh, early contestants, what makes you love talking about Survivor? Like, what is it about Survivor that really gets your gears turning in your mind uh, as opposed to something else? I think a couple of things. I think one with Drag Race it's there's so much there's a, such a vocal fandom online that it's easy to commentate on what's going on and just feel like you're adding to the noise and one thing i really appreciated about survivor was especially because you know i'm watching this show especially in the early seasons that aired 15 20 years ago so it's not as though there were other people for the most part tweeting about survivor season 1 but i think also so many people like this show and I feel like with Drag Race more or less not always but you tend to be talking to gay Twitter right there's just Mm -hmm. you're in a little bit of a microcosm and one thing I found fascinating about the show similar to the diversity of the contestants themselves is the diversity of the audience and who really loves this show also just like the cottage industry of Survivor, I mean, they're, the podcast alone, I mm-hmm. became really um, addicted to Survivor Historians, which is uh, a rival podcast. No, I'm just kidding. It's another podcast that's out there that is by far my favorite Survivor podcast. They do certain seasons. They go five parts with three to four hour episodes. So like Heroes versus Villains, they probably spend about 20 hours. They probably spend as much time as the show, the season itself, talking about the season And I love that. Like, I I realized how much I not only enjoyed watching Survivor, but like, you know, I have friends like you and others who I enjoyed talking about Survivor 
And the other thing that I love about it is just everyone has such strong opinions about this show. Who are the best players? Who are the worst? What the good seasons are? What do you think about Probst, etc.? And I'm the kind of person where I would say I have strong opinions, but I would also say I have a very malleable opinion. And I really, I love other people's perspectives and how they inform my own, especially in the case of like historians, when it's like, I came to really trust their POV, or even when I completely disagreed with them, I so enjoyed hearing them because it tends to be with historians. They always love a season that I hate and hate a season that I love. So like, for <laughs> instance, going to Heroes versus Villains, they were very meh about it. And I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? Um, but I love that. And so I think one thing that got me addicted was just I liked talking about the show. And I found that there were so many avenues with which to either talk about it, but more often than not to listen. And I just really enjoyed that. And I also, you know, just enjoyed watching the game change so much, you know, with the introduction, for instance, of the hidden immunity idol and how that impacted the game and returning players. You know, you have season eight, which is the first all-star season and just like seeing how the contestants had grown, seeing Sue Hawk four years later and, and what she's like upon her return and, you know, seeing players like Richard come back who had gotten famous, who were famous and were now playing the game. All of these different, you know, evolutions of the show have been so fun to watch and I, I find it just incredibly bingeable and I have to say like I'm not someone who I'm not a binger of shows that's really not the way I uh, process media best and this is a show that I I mean you can tell I started last year and I'm 33 seasons in but I also feel like I'm not passively watching it it's not something I have on in the background I'm just quite engaged and even with my partner like it's like we'll openly talk about the fact of like this doesn't make sense you know like this vote like this person was wrong and i'm mad about it and i the way i feel mad in those moments is so pure that i just like i'm really invested in the gameplay i want my heroes to succeed i want my villains to die not die but well sometimes <laughs> um but i i just feel an emotional connection to this game and the highs and lows of it all and they're just the I-24 comes to mind, you know, in Cook Islands, where it's just like, you have these four underdogs banding together against this really evil um, alliance on the opposing side, and and watching them succeed time and time again, it, I, I felt something in that moment. You know, I felt the kind of way I'm sure people felt watching Braveheart all these years ago. You know what I mean? Like, I, just, I felt mm -hmm. something, and I, I continue to feel things as I watched just last night um, in my watch of millennials versus gen x figgy finally went home and it just was like vindicating watching an unlikable character who thought that she had it made in the game go home it feels good so yeah. that's kind of why i've really come to not just love survivor but love like the survivor verse which i think is really a big part of my love for the show so that's why i love it why do you love it you know, it's a really similar reason. I think that uh, despite Survivor as a production having many faults that we can point out in terms of their editing and storytelling on a week-to-week -week basis, the reason I love this show is the storytelling. It's the characters and their arcs uh, over the course of the show. What really draws me in are the people that are playing 
And there's something I think about this game in particular, as opposed to Big Brother, and I love the concept of Big Brother. I'm a big fan of Big Brother UK. That's my other favorite reality show. And and for similar reasons, I feel like in Survivor, like in Big Brother UK, people are put into a, a situation where all of the facade is stripped away and you get to see who these people really are. You really get to know someone over the course of a season if it's a well-edited season, and that's a whole other conversation. But when you do have those moments, you really get like a kernel of, "This this is the humanity of this person. I'm seeing someone, I'm getting to know them in a way probably people who know them in real life don't even know. And we're all getting to experience this together and watch how they grow, watch how they adapt to certain situations and figure out their little quirks. And it's like those quirks and the comedy of the show, which is almost never overt. It's so rare that you get uh, something presented to you as comedic. And usually when you do, it's not that funny. The funniest moments are when you see someone reacting to something in in their truest form. So something that comes to mind just now is in Survivor uh, Panama, Exile Island. You know, there was that scene where uh, Bruce is ha- has appendicitis or something. And Courtney is trying to tend to him. And she says, do you want me to sing you a song? And he's like, no. And she starts singing. He's like, no. And, you know, it's just that interaction. You're yes. like, okay, I know who Courtney is. I know that girl. And <laughs> this is a really funny moment in a moment that's not supposed to be funny. Completely. And then you see people return, right? That this is this is part of the reason that suggesting that somebody watch Heroes versus Villains as their first season is so backwards in my mind, because Heroes versus Villains is the payoff right, to, to a nineteen it. season storytelling arc of this show. And at times it is so satisfying and rewarding as a longtime fan and viewer and follower of these people's lives. You know, there's that moment where they're doing a a challenge where they have to stay up sort of like by the edges of their feet and their elbows. And Jerry looks over and sees Colby and it's sort of like their first moment of interaction since All Stars. And of course, we know their story from or Survivor Australia. And it's just, it's a little moment. It really doesn't matter overall in the entire game, but it's so rewarding in that moment to just enjoy it. And so it's that kind of thing that that keeps me invested. And then, and then of course, the people are brutally voted out or win triumphantly. And that just adds layers on top of your enjoyment uh, of, of following these story arcs. And to your point about sort of the the payoff that is something like a season 20, I think one thing that you and I share in common and I think will be prevalent on this podcast is that like even the quote unquote bad seasons of Survivor are necessary to watch. And part of the reason why you can love something like a Micronesia or a Heroes versus Villains is because you need to get through some slogs of seasons. I think that people tend to want like the best of the best. And yes, of course we want the best of the best, but there is goodness to be mined within the air quotes bad seasons. I know, for instance, you love Helen in Thailand, a completely Mm -hmm. forgotten player for the most (laughs) part. But you, I remember when I started Thailand, you were like, Helen, Helen, Helen. 
And Thailand is never a season that's going to top any lists, but there are moments within it that I think, again, you and I share this completist mentality that I think that the payoff that is the show, viewing it as sort of like this 40 season arc, when people kind of bop around between seasons, I just don't get it because I feel like there's, you're doing it wrong. I just, I do this, I fundamentally believe there's a right way to watch it and a wrong, wrong way. And I feel like you're just giving yourself all, all of the hits. And it's like, I think that, you know, it's like having too much chocolate, for instance. It's like, you want something salty with something sweet. I think a perfect example of that for me is if you look at Andrea, who is one of my all-time favorite players, has played three times in three of my least favorite seasons of all time, Redemption Island, Caramoan, and Game Changers. And so despite that, you know, I would never recommend skipping those seasons because you would miss Andrea's story and her story arc, and she has quite an arc. And so, you know, just case in point to that. Totally. You know, we have all of these things that we love to talk about with regards to Survivor. Uh, why does the world need to hear this? There are so many Survivor podcasts. There really are. As you uh, alluded to. What is going to make ours different? Well, I think it's something that was kind of spoken about earlier, which is that I think there's a, often not always, a universality in terms of fan reaction. Um, and, I, and like I said, one of the things I loved about historians was how often I felt like my opinion was not in line with theirs. And I think that a lot of Survivor podcasts, not all, but a lot, are hosted by cisgender straight men. And so you get a lot of machismo even in how the game is looked at from them. I wish there was more commentary that examined the way that the show plays out and the way the show is edited. Especially the early seasons, they tend to not be as conscious about not conscious, maybe not as sensitive to mental health. Survivor is one of those shows that has a lot of moments where people deserve to be defended or given a little bit more discussion than I, than I think they've been given. I think that there's just players, often women, that are written off as crazy who are not crazy. And so I kind of feel excited to be able to get into that and I also think that there are some legends that are just forgotten. You know, one of my favorite players, not to jump ahead, but is Kathy, um, who first appears in Marquesas and plays again in All Stars. And when people mention like favorite Survivor players, you're not going to get a lot of people putting Kathy on the list. Not because she's not worthy, but because there's 40 seasons of this show, just a lot of stuff gets lost in the sauce. And in the case of Aparvati, who first appeared on the show in season 13 and appeared most recently in season 40, her she spans so many eras of the show that it's easy whether you came in in season 13 or you're a new contestant to know where, you know, where she stands. And even though Kathy is a returning player, she hasn't appeared on the show since season 8. And when you're in a show in season 40, that's ancient history. So I kind of feel like one thing we will be doing, Kathy's one that comes to mind. I'm sure Helen will be getting some justice. I feel like we are going to celebrate some of the forgotten legends who either haven't been given their due or in the case of like a Courtney, deserve more, just more dissection. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So much of our conversation offline is about 
the women that we love and the women who were not given a fair shake their first time around. And, you know, you mentioned Helen in Thailand. Like, I think she is one of the most iconic women to ever play this game. And if you don't remember, go YouTube her final jury speech, her final tribal jury speech. It is (laughs) one of the best bitter jury speeches that has ever been made. It's up there with Sue Hawk. And aside from that, she was a well-rounded, interesting player who has been forgotten over the years. And there are so many. And I think that, you know, being two gay men who like this show, which is not unusual, but is underrepresented in the Mm -hmm. podcasting sphere. There are some. um, So I just don't think that there are enough queer perspectives on Survivor out there. I think we can bring something unique to the discussion. You know, Survivor's also in an interesting place right now because having just completed season 40, which is in itself uh, a huge milestone, it was an all winner season, winners at war, which sort of felt like a cap to me on the first 40 seasons. And that has been reinforced by the rumors we're hearing about seasons 41 and 42. Uh, They have released the title of season 41, and it is Survivor 41. We have heard that it is a shortened time frame. It's possibly only 29 days long. And all signs point to a refresh of the game and the format. So I think this is kind of a really interesting time to talk about the show as we've seen it in the first 40 seasons as we enter potentially a new era. Yeah. And in in addition to that, there was a memorandum passed down by the heads of CBS that all reality television shows moving forward would need to have casts consisting of 50% people of color. This has been a criticism lobbed at Survivor for quite a long time. Famously or infamously, uh, in season 13, they did uh, Cook Islands, which was billed at the time as a race wars season. Highly controversial. They lost some of their... uh, uh, Advertisers? Yeah. They lost some advertisers at the time. And beyond that season and Fiji, which followed it, it's a game that is predominantly filled with white people. In addition to that, more too often than not people of color tend to go out early in the game if not first boots i mean i am currently watching as i mentioned millennials versus gen x it is really interesting casting in that there were five women of color on this season and no men of color but by survivor margins five out of 20 is is pretty good however i'm now what six or seven episodes in and four of the five women of color are gone and so i think that one of the exciting prospects that comes in this new uh, iteration of the show, if you will, is the possibility that people of color will be able to work with people of color. And we will not have so much tokenization as has been the case so often with people of color, with gay people on the show, with, I believe there's only one out trans contestant that we've had on Survivor, correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. Yeah, just so too often than not, and even when it comes to people with physical disabilities that we've had over the years, I think about Christy, for instance, in Survivor Amazon, how ostracized she felt by being so tokenized and having people that, again, talk about ways in which the show would look differently today. The things that people say about Christy in that season and how they treat her, Christy is deaf, it's just really hard to stomach. Not only how ignorant that they are, but how unwilling they are to be an ally to her 
her, especially when she's on their tribe. It's it's quite jarring. But I think one of the interesting things that presenting 50% POC opens up is new conversations that the show can have. I've interviewed Niall DeMarco several times, and one thing that he has said to me that's always really stuck with me is that you know, Niall is deaf and he grew up in a deaf household. He went to a deaf high school. In his world, deafness is the norm. And so I think so often when media, and not just reality television, but so often when media is presented, it is through the prism of whiteness being the norm. And I'm excited at the prospect of, of showing a cast that is so, so diverse. I think it's really exciting and I think it can facilitate larger conversations and I think by making it 50% they really are putting forth hopefully some precedent that other shows can learn from that and I, I only really see this being good for the show so I'm I, I think as you said I think not only is season 40 there's like a natural cap on the show and obviously there are gameplay many gameplay changes ahead but I'm also curious to see sort of like the ways in which the, you know, because at the end of the day, this is a sh social experiment. I am curious the ways in which this casting will impact the gameplay itself. Yeah. And I would like to add that, you know, that memorandum didn't come out of nowhere. That memorandum came out of the advocacy of the Black Survivors Alliance, which was a group that was formed of black contestants who have played survivor who went to cbs met with the president and met with jeff probes to talk about how they were portrayed and what they would like to see moving forward and i hope that we have an opportunity to talk uh in a lot more depth about that in a future episode because i think there's a lot to say i do as well and, and on that note we will be having various alumni from the show appearing on the pod but i think we're really anxious to hear from you all listening if there are players that you want to hear from if you are like us and are kind of like here to stand the underrated legends let us know who you want to hear from one of the great and sad things about survivor and again why it captures me so much is that you can go on RuPaul's Drag Race and appear in one episode and become famous. You look at Vanessa Vangie Mateo, who appeared on one episode of season 10, formed this meme, and her entire career has taken off. With Survivor, you can win the goddamn show and never be heard from again. Hello, Natalie. <laughs> but look at, look at Vesepia, who was not even asked, not even phoned about Winners at War. Justice for Vesepia. Yeah, so I think that that is just an example of the kind of people we are looking to talk to. So I think, again, to sort of underline why, why us, why are we doing this podcast, I think one thing that we hope for is to really be in conversation with some of the players that we're just wondering, A, where they're at now, and I think, like, for instance, it's like, I mean, my dream get is Kathy. Getting 2021 Kathy to remark on her gameplay from 15 years ago on a show that I imagine is pretty out of mind, out of sight for her. And I also imagine is not something she has reached out to often to speak about. That's the kind of guess that I am like super duper excited about. I think there are a lot of people like the Fishbacks, like the Courtney's that I'm confident we will have on the show that will be really exciting and offer really, you know, interesting insights. But I also want this to be a place where the unsung legends can come and we can grill them because I think one thing that you and I really share in common is just like this genuine respect for the gameplay of some of these former contestants and how they maneuvered through this competition when in some cases like all of the odds were stacked against them and they, you know, they came out heroes. 
Absolutely. So let's just get a little bit of a baseline for where you and I stand. I think people may have already gotten a sense based on the conversation so far, but let's get a little bit more direct about it and maybe get to some things we haven't said yet. So I would like to hear about your favorite era or season of the show. Mm. The one that comes to mind for me is season six, Amazon, that I just mentioned with Christy. It's the first time that they did a women's tribe and a men's tribe, separating them. And there was just this braggadocious um, male tribe who just from the get-go thought that they had it made. It was just sort of like a circle jerk back at camp, not literally, but it just was like, they really were like, we are set up for success. They thought that they were not only physically dominant, but felt like the women would not be able to handle the survival component which was true very early on, but then quickly some women emerged and sort of like helped, you know, whip the tribe into shape. There are moments that still stand out to me of watching the women triumph. Even moments when I think the women themselves didn't think that they could triumph and watching them succeed. That's another season where you get to see some of those big men go home relatively early. That was a season when I sort of saw the game kind of elevate itself. It's also famously Rob Sestrinino's uh, first really only season. I mean, he does come <laughs> back, but watching Rob be one of the first people to make a move that fundamentally altered the trajectory of the game that season, but also kind of set a precedent moving forward for what I consider to be a really smart strategy, which is when you are the swing vote. You should go for the people that you don't think you should stay with. You should go for the people on the other side. It's always best to swing, in my opinion. But so season six to me just has a lot to offer. And I just fell in love with Christy. I have really strong feelings for Christy. I thought, again, going back to it, it's just like watching people treat her like shit was one thing, but also just I felt like Christy had so much to contribute and watching her sort of like earn her place, watching her kind of learn her own value throughout her arc. Again, like you said this earlier, you were talking about like the journey of these characters. And I just think Christy's a great example of someone who, yes, she's an underdog, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. I just think that mm -hmm. Christy was someone who came in there with her own self-doubt about how she would do in the game and surprised even herself. And so Amazon is the one that sticks out for me. I don't know if it's like my favorite because I think it's, you know, there's so many different seasons and out. sometimes you like a character like you mentioned with Andrea but you don't love the season but Amazon is the one that I, I yeah when I think of favorite seasons Amazon comes to mind immediately how about for you I would have to say Panama Exile Island is a favorite it always has been a favorite I think it's got the perfect social dynamic to it of course it introduces us to some iconic characters like Sari Shane Aris, Danielle. I think that that alliance, including Courtney, is maybe one of the most dysfunctional alliances we have ever seen. I think the back and forth between Shane and Courtney is just television gold. You could not plan that better. And I think that Ceri's journey on that season is just heartwarming to watch you know she in episode one she was afraid of the leaves and then you get that great moment towards the end where she's dragging a fish that she caught by herself back to camp 
and she's sort of just like becoming more confident uh, in her own skills and building new skills. And it's just so rewarding to watch. You know, you've also got, I think, one of the first times where the hidden immunity idol plays a significant role in a season. Not necessarily one that I like to see, but, you know, still they're they're grappling with a brand new twist uh, and the twist of Exile Island. So I think just because of the characters alone, that season has such a special place in my heart. I also think I think a lot about HP Suri's uh, husband who comes on at one point during the mm-hmm. family visit and it's one of those moments where you like a player but you know you think well maybe I just like them in the context of the show and HB comes and you see this love and reverence he has for his wife and also the way in which he really views Suri as an equal because sometimes mm-hmm. you, you'll you meet a lot of men on the show, both the contestants and the husbands, who the dynamics are a little wonky. And HB was one of those really, it, it, it informed you so much about who Suri is beyond Survivor. And again, it's like that love for her. It's like, yes, we love Suri because she's good at Survivor, but we also love Suri because she's a hero. Like she really, there's just something, it's more than just the gameplay. And I think having that family visit kind of like certify the fact that it's like, no, I would hang out with Suri off the show. Like Suri's not just good at the game of Survivor. There's something more. So I agree. Panama is a really underrated season and Aris is hot. And Shane deserves to come back. I, you know, he didn't make it onto second chance. I don't know that he'll ever come back. I know he was very butthurt about that. And it's really unfortunate because he is truly one of the great, great straight male players. Yeah. You know, he's an example of like, more often than not, if there's a big character on a season, you're going to see them back again. Not always, but often. And I think Shane is an example. Shambo is another example of just these players who in the, when we say early seasons, I'm speaking of seasons one through 20, but that's an example of like these early players who are mostly forgotten um, that you're kind of like, wow, this person is totally primed for a second season, not only in being such a great character, but having like an arc in which you're like, I wonder what Shane would be like with a, today with his son mm-hmm. grown up and like having fi- finally quit smoking, I'm assuming. And just like, he's the kind of character you want to check in with. There are moments like, I know with uh, Terry Dietz, when he comes on Second Chances, where you don't see a player for many, many seasons, Terry Dietz of Panama fame. When you see them, you know, 10, 15 seasons later, when it's like so exciting to see them back, not just because they're back, but because they very well might be a completely different person, are no doubt in a different Mm -hmm. place in their lives. I think the thing with Parvati, because it's seasons 13, 16, and 20, her first three times out of the game, she's more or less in the same place in her life. I always love sort of like those big gaps between seasons. That's why I'm excited to see her on Winners at War. And And I'm hopeful that when we move forward into, I guess, 43 is our next shot at having returnees. I'm excited at the prospect of getting some of these older, and when I say older, I don't just mean age-wise, but also age-wise, um, but some of these older players, you know, back in the saddle. Okay, favorite winner? You go first. I would say Kim Spradlin is my all-time favorite winner. I think she just dominated the game like no other. And I think, again, this is uh, not to get too deep into this, because maybe we will in the future, but I think One World is a season we're aligned on as a season that is unfairly maligned by the fandom that I think stands up 
so perfectly and almost entirely because of that women's alliance and the way that Kim Spradlin absolutely dominated it and played a perfect I don't believe that there has been a more perfect game than Kim's I agree with you the thing about Kim is is I totally agree it's a completely dominant win there wasn't much adverse adversity that she had to face in getting there because of the fact that Chelsea was so in it I was gonna say in it to win it but really in it to help Kim win it um (laughs) that I do think that there are seasons in which the winner claws their way to the top in such a way and I'm not saying one is better than the other but Kim is in that situation where it's like, of course Kim won. And that's not to say she doesn't deserve it. But I do think that Kim, it's like, she, I I was going to say it's like she didn't have to work as hard. She did have to work as hard. She was incredibly dominant throughout that season. But it's like a season, I would, I guess what I'm trying to say is, does Kim come back? Winner is at war. Okay. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm really curious to see Kim in, in an environment in which she doesn't have the alliance that she had because I think mm. one of the great things about that season is you actually see an alliance that's willing to stick together and because you like them it's a good thing because sometimes like in Samoa you have a group of bad people that stick together and you're like it ends up just being a disaster as a viewer so that one is rewarding in the sense of like we like Kim we like Chelsea we like Sabrina we like so many of those people at the end but I definitely agree. She's a fantastic winner. Um, my favorite winner, also a, a really dominant player, would probably be Natalie. I just think that she contains multitudes. I think she is so dynamic. I think that if you recall in that season, this is Natalie from San Juan del Sur. Oh, right, because there's two Natalies. Mm-hmm. I need to distinguish. <laughs> yes. Natalie from San Juan del Sur. So basically in that season, it's the it's the second Blood versus Water, right? That's right. Right. So this is the Blood versus Water season, whereas the first Blood versus Water had a returnee and then their partner. This season was entirely new players, but everyone came in pairs. And notably, Natalie's twin sister, twin sister? Yeah. Twin sister, Nadia, Nadia was voted out in episode one. So when, mm-hmm. you know, when you talk about the odds being against you, everybody else in the game has a pair at that point, except for Natalie. And I just found Natalie's agility throughout the game her confrontational nature which i really like i like an aggressive player and i also feel like natalie understood the fact that if you want to win this game especially in the later seasons you need to you need to be able to come to the final tribal council and say these are the moves that i made you don't need to have that to win because there can be a situation in which everyone hates the people that you're sitting next to enough that they reward you with the win. But I feel like Natalie really understood the assignment and said, here are some major moves I am going to make throughout the game. Here is a strategy that I'm going to go forward that I can go to this final tribal and say, here's what I did and let that speak for itself. Even though she was in it to win it, I felt like she still respected the social game aspect of it and was funny like had a good I I feel like Natalie came away from the show having made friends and having had a good experience and that resonated for me as a viewer Natalie's a superstar and San Juan del Sur is one of those seasons that has been reevaluated over time at the time that it aired people were really not into it I'm speaking generally and from my experience on Survivor Twitter and even just in the past few months the number of tweets I have seen praising San Juan del Sur is unbelievable and so well earned totally because it truly is a really really great 
modern season of Survivor. Plus, it's one of the few seasons that you have multiple gay players. So I think we have uh-huh. Vanuatu, Guatemala, San Juan del Sur, and... Micronesia. Micronesia, Borneo, Sonia, Richard. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are quite a few, but I just I think there's something fun about watching multiple LGBTQ plus contestants on the show, especially when, as I mentioned, you know, the show is is really wonderful about tokenizing um, minorities. So I think that that was a... Outback, though they were both closeted. Yeah, wow. Interesting. Famous villain Jeff Varner, um, who I look forward to watching his demise. Um, What about underrated players? Because I feel like one of, as we mentioned, like one of the big things with this podcast is celebrating the underrated legends who, I mean, I think I know your answer. I don't know if you do. I mean, Helen. Okay, yeah. Helen, obviously. (laughs) But just to switch it up and give you like a little bit uh, more, I would say, like, there's so many, but uh, having just recently watched Micronesia, Tracy from Micronesia, who was a fan, was so, so good and just could never get the numbers on her side. She just, the, the swaps hurt her. She just could never get a leg up, but was so clearly made for this game and so, so deserves a second chance and probably will never get one, unfortunately. But there's a huge underrated player. I think Brenda, although she sort of like flopped in Karamoan, I do believe that she's an underrated player. I've never been so excited by somebody so early in a season as I was by Brenda in Nicaragua. And it's worth mentioning, just one of the most beautiful players to ever play the game. 100%. Uh, and another one I would highlight is Katie Gallagher from Palau. I think she's a good enough player. I mean, she got herself to the end, but she is a fantastic character yes. on television who gave us really, really great confessionals. She gave us that iconic line saying, we can't get a female alliance together because Karen sucks, which is one of the sort of like early, not Survivor memes, but one of the early quotes that really took off online for Survivor. And I just think she hasn't been given her due and has unfortunately somewhat been lost to history as well. And that is a great example of like someone who was decimated in the final tribal council that I think, again, had that aired today, it would be like, there's a way in which Katie in particular is just... It's like she's hit with a hammer over and over again in that final tribal, particularly by men. And I remember watching that just being like, okay, guys, we get it. You don't like Katie. Mm -hmm. You're not going to vote for her. She's not going to win. And that's an example of one, too, where, like, it got really personal. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, justice. eh, I don't know about justice for Katie. Something for Katie. Um, (laughs) Something for Katie. Mine is someone that I thought you were going to say. Um, who I know you love, Natalie Bolton from Micronesia, mm-hmm. I think is someone who made a really significant move that completely altered the game. I think had she not successfully convinced Eric to, was it that he gave up the idol or he gave it to her? He gave it to her. Yeah, her, the immunity idol. Had she not masterminded that move, it would have never played out. But also it's an example of what the... Alliance convinced Natalie to try and do was insane. There was no logic for Eric to give up his idol. And Natalie, with her social game, was able to convince Eric to make arguably and 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 considered such one of the dumbest moves, if not the dumbest move, to ever happen on the game. And I just think that when you talk about sort of like 
strategy and manipulation and all these things. There are very few cut and dry examples of someone being able to see their fate in the game, grab it and completely twist it. I also just felt like I loved, like Natalie was so evil and I liked mm -hmm. that she was so open about it. And she not only was evil to other players, she would even do evil confessionals, which I really, really liked. I just felt like Natalie, <laughs> accepted the villainry that she had built for herself and not only accepted it, like really embraced it. And it was really fun to watch her step into that and completely own it. In a way that women typically aren't allowed to do. Exactly. And sometimes, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. But, you know, you contrast this with another season I just watched, Gabon, where you had Corinne also play the evil character in confessionals. And it didn't come off well. I think that's to Natalie's merit. You know, she played the villain card well. I think very few people, men or women, can play it well. When a man plays the villain card or when they play the villain role, mm -hmm. most of the time I am not going to sympathize with them. And likewise, I think when women do it, though they do it so rarely, like Corinne, I am never going to sympathize with a Corinne. But when Natalie does it, I'm like, Yes, like take me to the dark side with you. And that's one of the fun things about the show, which is although there are archetypes, there are sometimes the archetype gets split open in a way in which you start to see like different versions of the archetype play out and realize that it's like some you like, some you don't. Or sometimes you have instances in which you think someone is a certain archetype. I'm going through that right now with Michaela on uh, Millennials versus Gen X, where I had such a strong opinion about her. I thought, oh, she is this character within the Survivor verse at the outset. And every episode, it breaks open more and more and more. And I'm, and I'm like, I love her. And so I think that one of the fun things too is as you start to learn the archetypes, when you get players who who either adhere to it and then break it open completely um, or who never quite fit an archetype. It's like you have, you know, Shambo who, you know, is getting multiple mentions on this episode as she should. There wasn't a player like Shambo and there hasn't been a player since Shambo because I think although you get like the crazy, crazy people from time to time, Shambo found an alliance that took her somewhat seriously, didn't treat her like a crazy person so much, a little bit in confessionals. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was just like, there's never been a Shambo. And it's fun when you have these players where you're like, there's never been an XYZ. I mean, and I, yeah, I think casting wise, this show though it falls into traps at times, Redemption Island being a great example, I do think that like more often than not, especially Borneo, I think the reason why this became the phenomenon it was was because Borneo is perfectly cast. And so credit to the casting directors. See, so let's get into archetypes then because I want to know what kind of archetypes you're drawn to. And I thought it was interesting what you said about Shambo because actually I think Shambo fits into one of my favorite archetypes which is kind of the strong independent woman usually over 35 35 to mid 50s and i think that shambo actually fits in quite well with somebody like twyla mm. from vanuatu like i find them to be very similar types of characters um so in that way i would say that there has been a shambo before that's interesting um, but they come up so so rarely people had put in this category are helen glover from thailand sue hawk from season one 
Cass, which I know that there's a lot we can say about Cass from Cagayan, and not that she's necessarily good at the game, but I'm very drawn to her as a character. Right. Uh, I find that she's got a certain je ne sais quoi. I would put Sandra Diaz-Twine in this category. Would you um, put where, Debbie from Kaurong in this category? Uh, to a certain extent, I would, but I think that she would be in an archetype that's a little bit more pigeonholed as the eccentric. Debbie is an example of someone who... I don't get the sense was as crazy as the show tried to lead you to believe she was. For instance, they would alter her lower third all the time because one of the things about Debbie was, you know, she was a Jill of all trades. She, cause you know, a former model and did X, Y, Z thing. But rather than present that as like, wow, she's really well-rounded. The show presents it as that as, wow, she's just so eccentric and crazy that she just will say she does anything rather than maybe give her the you know benefit of the doubt that maybe Maybe she's just a person who's had a lot of jobs. Do you ever feel like the show kind of has an agenda in terms of taking a person and and making them seem a little more crazy than they are? Yeah, and I think that Debbie is a good example. Like I say, she is good at certain aspects of the game. I don't. She's certainly not the best player we're ever going to see. But I do think that the show treated her somewhat badly i think she took it in stride and i think she has a sense of humor about herself but you know i do think that if a man had all of the jobs that debbie had they would not have been altering their chiron to reflect that i think when they present somebody like debbie in the way that they presented her it's a very clear signal to us that in their minds debbie doesn't matter in the game despite the fact that actually I think she was an important piece in the strategic game of Kaurang. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot that we can talk about in terms of the way that women, particularly women over the age of 35, are portrayed mm-hmm. on the show and the stories that they give those women. But at the same time, I also think that Debbie plays up her eccentricities to a certain extent that allowed the show to take it and run with it. Mm. I think it's like a a nuanced situation. What archetypes are you drawn to? I think Suri and sort of like the idea of the person, more often than not woman, who came on the show thinking that the elements was something that she would not be able to take on and who realized that once she actually applied herself, uh, she was a natural. I think about Michaela right now, there's an episode that I just watched in which no one, none of these strong men could make a fire. And Michaela sat there with this determination and grit and, and said, I'm going to make a fire. And not only made a fire, but made one when no one else could, and then stepped into the woods and, and cried. And I thought that was, it reminded me so much of Sari, which is just that I love moments in which people, and it it happened, I think I mentioned with Christy too, where it's like when people, you see them realizing their own strength. I think that those moments, and again, they're particularly women, but just women who lack self-confidence, who gain some sense of it through their show are my favorite, always. Evan, I can't believe you're even saying this. Because you're in for such a treat. And I'll leave it at that. One other archetype I want to mention is the gay strategic mastermind. Because it's one that we actually don't see that often. And they are so good. And we haven't seen one, I think, in a very long time. So I'm talking John Carroll in Marquesas, Todd in China, Charlie in Gabon. Who else do we have? 
gay strategic. Wait, there's uh uh. Well, you could say Josh in San Juan del Sur. Okay. I think he uh I'll Colton from One World. Do we call him a strategic master? I mean, he definitely was trying to strategize, and he was successfully rallying <laughs> his tribe. So, I mean, I think so. Um, he masterminded his medevac, that's for sure. strategic. I feel like we're forgetting a significant one. Ty, to an extent, in Kaorong. Sure. Um, but yeah, sure. no, certainly that is definitely. But I think John Carroll, being that he was, I mean, I, well, could you say Richard? I mean, maybe? Yes, you could. Yes, you could. Yeah. I mean, just the presentation of Gaiman on the show in general, I think about in that the show tokenizes, one thing I will give the show credit for is that like we've, especially when it comes to gay men, because I do think we're underrepresented in terms of our lesbians and absolutely trans contestants. But when it comes to gay men, I feel like we've gotten a lot of different kinds of gay men. And Todd is one I'm particularly proud of and I look forward to having on this podcast because... I think Todd is not only an underrated winner, I think he's just an underrated player in general, but also just, I like when a player comes in and from the outset takes the game and like, it's just, this game is my bitch. Not Mm. one where it's like, okay, well over time, like once some people are gone, they start to come out. Like Todd was strategizing from the outset. He wrecked, and then also when Jean Robert, sometimes I cannot believe these names I pull out. Um, When Jean Robert came to him in the beginning, and was like, I wanna work with you. It's like Todd recognized, okay, I'm going to let this alpha male believe that he is running things. That is like, he, he strategized the strategizer. So yeah, I definitely really love that. I think John Carroll is an example of someone who like definitely got outwitted, uh, but I think his strategy was effective. It just didn't work out in Marquesas. But I feel like, mm-hmm. again, this is an interesting thing about this show is there are situations where it's like, this player would have succeeded in a different season, in a different cast. I feel like, there are a lot of winners who I never think would have won had they not had Bob and Gabon would have never won had you not had that cast, right? Who just kind of ignored him for the majority of the game. So I think it's definitely interesting when you have a John Carroll where you're like, you played a really great game. You didn't do great, but I don't think you would, I I don't think you should have done anything differently. I just think you, you got outwitted and that's, and that's fine. It happens sometimes. Uh, Okay. Quick thoughts on Jeff Probst as a host. I, this is what I say about Jeff Probst. I think that he can be bad, but when he is good, he is great, and he's often good. I think of Jeff similarly to how I think about RuPaul, which is that when you examine the legacy, you know, because this man has hosted 40 seasons of this show now, there are definitely some cringe moments, but I find Jeff to be remarkably compassionate. There is a moment in Calrong when Caleb is medevaced and everyone is just in tears. I think that they are physically exhausted from the challenge, from the heat, emotionally overwhelmed by Caleb being medevaced as well as the fact that two other contestants had to be attended to by medical. And Jeff comes over to Caleb's tribe mates who are all sitting there completely like just distraught. And the first thing he says to them is, how are you all? And I know it's like, I'm like, you know, he doesn't deserve a medal for that, but it's in that moment where it's like, Jeff recognized that he, obviously he was coming over to them to give them the news that Caleb was gonna be leaving the game. And and he knew that it was going to be a big blow for them because, you know, they're losing not only someone on their tribe, but the strong, I mean, arguably one of the strongest people on their tribe, if not the strongest. And that he had the wherewithal to kind of do a mental check-in with them. 
I just think that Jeff, his proximity to the game benefits the show um, more often than not. And yeah, I would say my biggest strike against him is just the him commentating on the challenges, him kind of being mm-hmm. the um, announcer is so nauseating. It's so nauseating, especially he can be so condescending in the challenges, especially with women calling out how bad they're doing um, when it's like, we're, we get it, Jeff. But yeah, again, it's like, I think Jeff is a really important ingredient in the soup that is Survivor. How do you feel about him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To your point, I think he has a tendency, particularly while announcing the challenges, to uh, over-exaggerate and forget his history, particularly when he will announce that somebody has been the worst tribe ever, the worst performance by a tribe of all time. I think he has forgotten uh, what has happened in the past in many cases. I never want to hear that somebody is the worst tribe ever when we had an entire tribe decimated in plow. All of that aside, I would say that Jeff is uniquely qualified as a host of Survivor because when you look at other reality show hosts, you'd be hard-pressed to find one as invested in the game as Jeff is in Survivor. And so I think you've got to give him props for that. Having said that, I think that Jeff is a great host of Survivor. I do not think he is a great executive producer Mm. of Survivor. I think many of the reasons that Survivor has gone downhill, in my opinion, in the particularly in the modern seasons, uh, have been the result of decisions made by Jeff. And I will leave it at that because we will talk much more about that in the future, I'm sure. Okay, let's do a couple more of these. Do you think the show's jumped the shark at any point? Well, I think you should answer this first just because it's more as someone, you know, as the completionist that you are, you tell me. My answer is yes. My short answer is yes. I think there are several moments in the show's history that you could point to and say that it jumped the shark at that particular moment. Uh, One of those for me would be the Russell Hance narrative of the show, uh, making a particular personality the focal point to the point where the show has tunnel vision for one character. Because Samoa as a season actually had a really interesting and dynamic cast, almost none of whom we got to know as complex characters because 70% of the airtime was going to Russell. And I think that actually dates back to the season prior with Coach, I think Coach was sort of the blueprint for that type of editing. Uh, And Russell really took it to the next level. And then we had to get it again in Heroes vs. Villains. And then we had to get it again when they brought him back for Redemption Island. And we had to get the brand enhanced story. I think that, I think, so I think you could point to Samoa. I think you could argue for Samoa. I also think you could point to Redemption Island as a jump the shark moment, both the twist of Redemption Island, which eliminated the basic gameplay premise of Survivor, which is that you are voted out and you leave the game, but also the fact that it was essentially a season fully engineered to allow for Boston Rob to win. And that's another instance where it's like, Jeff gets these hard-ons for certain characters, like Russell, like a Rob, and Mm-hmm. He starts to, when he gets that tunnel vision with those kind of contestants, that is, is going back to the Jeff thing real quick, that is an example of like Jeff at his most frustrating because it's seldom, unless Parvati is really in the conversation, it's very seldom, that hard on is very seldom for women. Well, I mean, that's a strange analogy, but you know what I mean. 
<laughs> yes, uh, but I would say that truly the real jump the shark moment, if there is a specific moment, it did happen. And it's why I stopped watching Survivor will come in season 34. I think many people will know what it is by me saying that. I hope they do. And I hope, Evan, that you will recognize it when you see it. I think you will. But it's what if I don't? to me. You no, will. I know. I know. It's, <laughs> it's signaled to me that the game is broken. It has gone too far with certain elements and twists. And we need to get back to basics. Mm. And even from that moment, I don't think it has been even remotely fixed. I think, in fact, the problem has gotten worse. But it can all be brought back to this specific moment, which would I, I would say is the jump the shark moment. Can they come back? Yes, I believe that they can. Uh, but they need to make an effort. I would say from where I am at in 33, recognizing that I have not yet seen 34, I wouldn't say it's jumped the shark. I would say that it ebbs and flows. My, I was really worried going into season 21 that the show would sort of be done. Because again, saying that season 40 felt like a cap, season 20 felt like its own cap at the time. But I love Nicaragua. Season 21, I think it's really great. I think Nayanka is very underrated. But that's an example of like, you have Nicaragua, which I think was really a great follow-up season to Heroes vs. Villain, and then you have Redemption Island, which is like total smut. But then it's like you get South Pacific right after with the same premise, but better casting and less of a an edit that's so centric upon a single player. This to say that there have been many times when it, I will hate a season and think, oh, the show's going downhill, and then the next season will come about and things will improve. I think that what I've noticed moving into season 33 is that the seasons that happen the most organically, so with the fewest amount of medevacs and the fewest idol plays, tend to be my favorite because more often than not, it's men that find the idol and shift the game. And too often than not, it's men that I don't like finding the idol. So I am, as a viewer, forced to be in a situation in which I know that a player I don't want to win has an advantage that sometimes people don't even know about. And so when you have seasons in which either that person with the idol gets voted out while they have the idol or doesn't use it, et cetera, I really like those seasons because they tend to remind me of the early seasons in terms of really needing to have a social game. Because one of the, the problems, I think, with the game at its present state is that I think that you don't need to play the social game because of the idol. You can use the idol uh, to maneuver around having a social game. And I think that that is to the detriment of the original concept of the show. But yeah, I go back to just kind of saying, it's like, I think it does a good job of washing its hands clean. I know you and I both hate Kara Moen, and I feel like it was a the next season was able to refresh itself in a way that I felt dirty after watching Kara Moen. I just, it was so unpleasant. And it was nice to be like, okay. And I fell out of love with the show. And then it was nice to come back the following season and be like, okay, I can love the show again. Okay, so one final question I have is one that I think we're going to explore quite a bit on this show, uh, and it's, is Survivor good for the LGBTQ plus community by way of representation? And, you know, a little bit of context for this is that I do think that people forget that this show debuted in 2000. Keep in mind that Ellen came out in 1997 on her sitcom, and... Yes, that was a big step forward, but 
she received a huge backlash for that and her career was essentially over and maybe it should have stayed over that's another debate <laughs> um, but she did come back from it but many years later you know will and grace debuted i think in 1998 and of course the real world prior to all of that had gay representation in a reality show but i don't think that there was anything that was quite on the scale and certainly nothing as watched as survivor season one which had a gay winner who was not necessarily like the gay people we were used to seeing on tv he wasn't the sassy gay friend he was an older overweight naked (laughs) strategic mastermind who really laid out the way that this game is supposed to be played so it's quite complex and he certainly has a complex history but it's worth keeping in mind that that is one of the first representations of a real gay person that many people in north america saw so anyways i open with that what are your thoughts particularly i'm interested in your thoughts on the early lgbtq representation on the show well as someone that wrote this question it's kind of a bad framing of the question i will admit because i don't believe there is I don't believe representation is so binary to say like, this is good representation and this is bad representation. I think that what I would maybe say is that the show offers a lot by way of representation that I think is really interesting and dynamic. Um, Again, like as you mentioned with Richard, him being so different than the archetypes that have been presented, but also you have to remember with your Ellens, who Ellen DeGeneres, the character on Ellen came out in addition to Ellen DeGeneres, the human being, so often the LGBTQ plus representation that we had was written, right? Often by cisgender straight people in their interpretation of LGBTQ-ness, if you will, there was very seldom an opportunity given for LGBTQ plus people to portray queerness through their own lens. And so I think that not only was Richard so unique, I don't think you would have gotten a character like Richard written, right? And I think that's one Mm -hmm. of the really interesting things. And also, he remains kind of rare in that He didn't want to be a villain in the way that I think a lot of people today would come on the show and be like, I'm not here to make friends. And though I think that was the case with Richard, I don't think that was really his vibe. I think Richard thought, and maybe correctly so, that he was smarter than everybody else there. And I think that he is such pivotal casting. I mean, whether you love Richard or hate Richard, and, and I know more often people will hate him, I think him not being on Winners at War, and I recognize him three or seven seasons away, I think it's a problem. I wish he would have been there. Hot take, maybe. But I, I just think he is so important to the legacy of the show. And I think especially in contrast to Tina in season two, where you get this really likable winner, I like the fact that the show... And then you get, like, Ethan, who's beloved, and Vesepia who should be loved. I feel like Richard really represented until Brian in season five, the idea that like you don't need to win this game, though it's a social game, you don't need to win the game by um, being nice, like right, by like being good Mm -hmm. to people. So I think that's, you know, one thing. But I would say I've enjoyed watching the many various LGBTQ people that have appeared on the show. I think that there is definitely a dearth of lesbians 
without question. The fact that we are 40 seasons in and have one out trans contestant is a problem. I think it's important that as we prioritize things like, you know, this new memorandum coming down saying 50% POC, I wish similarly that there were more efforts made, whether it be through mandates like that or otherwise to say, hey, we need more trans contestants on this show. I think it's easy for the show, the people in the up top to say, to check off the LGBTQ plus box with gay men. And I think that that's disappointing. But I would say on the whole, I've really enjoyed contestants like Ty in particular, who I just think are so themselves and manage to endear themselves to their tribes and to viewers. And I think that like Ty's bizarre friendship with Caleb is a great example of like watching because everyone will cite the Rudy Richard thing, which I hate. I think Rudy is a homophobe. I think I think Rudy's bullshit. I hate Rudy. May he rest in peace. No, he doesn't need to. <laughs> um, but I think Caleb is an example of like watching someone who I imagine had not been around a lot of gay people before and just fell in love with Ty. So anyway, all long-winded, but to say, I don't necessarily think the show is like has done a tremendous job, but I think going back to the fact that I think the show is so well cast that it's managed quite often to have really dynamic LGBTQ plus characters, Natalie Bolton, um, that that is one component of the show that I think that I want more, always want more, but I think it's done a decent job. What do you think? What I really like about the show, particularly the early seasons, is that it is a very true documentation of what society thought of gay people at the time. You mentioned Rudy, and I do want to talk about him because the show depicted gay people, I think, in a very uh, objective way to its audience. It certainly didn't judge them or stereotype them or edit them in a specific way to seem gay. Mm. Um, But it also didn't shy away from showing casual homophobia. And whether that's because the show endorsed that or not, it seemed to me like documentary as opposed to for laughs or something like that. Although you could argue that some of Rudy's lines were were put in the show for laughs. But I think it just goes to show, I think it's a, an, a useful time capsule to see the way that it was to be gay and to relate to straight people in the early 2000s. So I think people have really forgotten about you know you saw it with rudy but like let's talk about boston rob in season four when he's talking about john carroll being one of the girls and he's not going to be sleeping anywhere near him and he's a big time queer if survivor could go back and and scrub that they probably would because they love boston rob so much and you know to boston rob's credit i hope I believe that Boston Rob has changed his opinion and wouldn't say that today, but this exists as a time capsule of the way that people were in 2002. And not only that, it's like the fact that he not only had those thoughts, was willing to share them, and didn't even bat an eye at thinking, oh, well, some people might think this sounds homophobic. It's like there are people out there and I'm sure on the show, that are homophobic, that have the wherewithal to contain it for their understanding of how it might come off. And it's like the flagrant display of homophobia and with no thought towards, well, maybe this won't make me look good. The the normalization of homophobic rhetoric, in particular in those early seasons, is startling. Mm -hmm. 
Also, it's like, who wouldn't want to sleep next to John Carroll? You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, justice for John Carroll. Justice. I actually, I'm optimistic that we will have John Carroll on this podcast. I would love that. Okay, we've had a very good discussion. I hope that people get a good sense of where we're coming from and what they can expect. We've talked about it a little bit. You can expect some legendary guests from this podcast, maybe some huge fans of the show. We want to hear from you about what you want us to cover. Uh, If you have a topic that you'd like us to do a deep dive on or a favorite contestant that you think deserves some time in the spotlight, please let us know. Voice memo. We Uh, love voice memo. We're really excited to dive into it. Send us a voice memo. You may get played on the show. Uh, You can find us on Instagram where you can send us voice memos uh, at Evan Ross Katz and I am at soda.pup. We really hope to hear from you. And if you liked this, then please subscribe so you don't miss the future episodes. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out about the show among so many Survivor podcasts that are already out there. Uh, We're looking to rise to the top. So thank you so much for listening. Is there a Survivor sign-off? I'm trying to think. um... The tribe has spoken. Oh yeah, the tribe has spoken. The gays have spoken. See you next episode.